Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus here. My guest today is Emma Gannon. Emma is a best-selling author, a broadcaster, a speaker and a practicing coach. She has published five best-selling books today, including The Multi-Hyphen Method, Sabotage and Disconnected. Her first novel, Olive, came out in 2020. Emma started her career in the magazine industry. She wrote columns and she was a social media editor at Glamour Mag, but on her own time was writing a blog, a blog that would motivate her to make the leap into the world of freelance work. It was then that she started her podcast, Control Alt delete a careers podcast without the corporate bullshit her words and this was way before podcasts were as omniscient as they are now since launching she's spoken to over 400 different creatives about how they conduct their careers from Ava DuVernay to Dolly Alderton all of those episodes are still available to listen to now but notably at the start of this year Emma announced she was quitting the podcast now, as well as coaching, Emma writes a really popular weekly newsletter on Substack called The Hyphen that is an exploration of ideas that have got her thinking in new ways. She continues to write books and her most recent, The Success Myth, Letting Go of Having It All, is what we're here to talk about today. It changes our perspectives of what success is. I can honestly say, hand on heart, Emma, that it's changed how I'm looking at my life. Like, it's changed me. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're one of the first people to read it, so that means a lot. It's so good. Like, I have a kind of, um, I wouldn't say an allergy, but I glaze over a lot when it comes to the, the kind of this new lexicon when it comes to wellness and that business. I find it, I've just, it, I can't really engage with it. But the way you write is so straightforward and so accessible and easy to immediately be able to apply to yourself. Um, it's it's such a practical book, I think, and such a pragmatic uh, book in terms of being able to take what you're saying and apply it um, and yeah congratulations it's amazing thank you I'm the same I, I don't like wellness I'm mm. not into this like self-improvement culture of feeling bad about yourself whilst mm. trying to be better and I'm more about well-being I like that word more well-being is mm. a lovely word so listen before we get into this book before we get into talking about success and what it means and how we can change our perceptions of it I want to address something so that Everyone listening can feel this conversation is for them. We, you and I, are both cis, able-bodied, white women. Uh, we have both had, according to your book, and I know it me, have had kind of loving and supporting family environments growing up. Is it not easy for us to sit here and discuss success when we've had very few hurdles put in front of us to get it? Yes. I'm so glad we're starting with this because it really lays the foundation for the book. It's honestly, the reason why I'm writing it is because... Like you just said, if you're in a position where you have seen behind the curtain, which I feel I have, I know that you have in many of your jobs, where I've met so many successful people who have literally reached this sort of cloud nine version of success that we are sold every single day in our culture of the big house, millions of pounds, 
Oscar-winning directors, scientists, people who have climbed Everest, people who have won gold medals. Like, I've interviewed these people. I feel so lucky. And not to mention my childhood and everything that was very privileged, which we'll probably get onto. But I've met these people and they're not as happy as we think they should be. Mm. And I'm a curious person. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. And I could not meet hundreds of these people and be very privileged and successful myself and not kind of talk about the elephant in the room, which is like this thing that we're all bred to want Mm. isn't actually what we think it is. It's, you know, people who have fame, money, power. A lot of people end up, you know, overdosing or dying by suicide. Like this is a very serious topic. And so I sort of push back on which I know it's not what you're doing, but I push back on people who say, like, we shouldn't talk about this and you Mm. shouldn't talk about this. Mm. I feel like it's the most important thing we could be talking about right now. Right. I would love for our listeners to come away from this conversation feeling really inspired to look at their lives differently, like I did upon reading this book. There's things I want to talk about. I actually have headings within our conversation. Emma, I mean, that's a whole other story about how I um, like to micromanage and plan everything, (laughs) including my rest periods. But... I want us to talk about productivity, ambition and happiness. Um, But first of all, the book at large, a quote from the book. The world is going through a vast amount of change in a very short period of time. It feels like turbulence on a plane. I believe that before we tell ourselves that we're broken and need to change, we should consider whether it's actually the society we live in that is broken and needs to change. You talk about successful people being confused, unsatisfied when they get to the, the success they so craved. And in the book, you say... It's because we've been lied to. What are those lies? Well, that's why I called it the success myth, because I unpick all the myths. Because if you really look behind all of the things we're supposed to want, there's something kind of sinister going on there. I mean, we're sort of in a world where it's easier for, you know, the people that own the big companies for us to just sort of be plugging away on the rat race and not really look up and question things. So I guess I wanted to start with that because... I believe we're in a time where we are chasing something because we always feel like we don't have enough. Like we're always thinking there's more, there's more, there's more. We never look back and think, wow, I did something really cool there. Or I've actually got some really good friends. Even if I've got two, that's enough. Or my house is actually really cosy and I really like it and I can go outside and look at the sky. Like those are the things that fundamentally do make us happy. We have enough, uh, many of us, and I'm sure we'll get on to like what enough actually means personally. But I think we have enough resources now to sit back and be like, something's broken. Mm. Why do we always want more? Mm. Mm. And you talk brilliantly in your book about the pursuit of happiness and the kind of, not the myth of happiness, but the, the myth of happiness being something you should strive for and something you can feel all the time, quite simply, you know. Yeah. And and in the book, I mean, a, re- a bit that really kind of made me you know, start, I suppose, was was the stats um, about happiness. You say one in seven people are on antidepressants. This is according to NHS studies. And then also there are persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in teenagers that have risen from 26% to 44%, the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. 60% of all UK workers are unhappy at work, according to a 2020 study by investors in people. Like these stats are like, whoa, this is backed up evidence and stats that people are unhappy. What are the things in society that are making it hard for us to kind of reach these levels of happiness we're supposed to crave? 
Yeah, I mean, the happiness myth chapter is a really meaty one because I really wanted to tap into how happiness as a concept, like it's a word, it's a concept, happiness, what is that, is sort of pretending to be bottled and sold, essentially. Like we think like, oh, if I buy that thing, we'll be happy. Or Mm. if I move house, I'll be happy. Yes, we will be more comfortable. We will probably have, you know, nicer surroundings, but that's not the same as happiness. And I talk about the difference between that happiness that we think we'll have in the future versus like the joy that we can have in the everyday. And really, I wanted to talk about how this is not a coincidence that these statistics come off the back of a pandemic, but these statistics have also been rising really since social media took a bit of a downturn. And those things really do sit side by side. Like I think so many of us can say that the days where we forget to check our phone, miraculously, we're having a really good day and everything is okay in the world and our life isn't that bad. I'm, you know, I'm with you in this book. Like I wrote this book for myself. Mm. I'm not from the outside giving this wisdom. I can go into such a dark spiral if I see something online that's triggering me. And it's I think it's about building that awareness. Mm. Let's talk about you then. So, you know, success. The, the book is about changing our perceptions of what success is. When did your perceptions start to change when it came to success? Well, I talk about in the first few chapters how I'm I'm a recovering workaholic. Uh, essentially, I'm like a success addict. Like I I grew up wanting to be really successful. I I I my whole twenties was just dedicated to that. My friends would say occasionally, hmm, "Do you want to come to the pub or like let off some steam? Should we go to a gig?" I didn't do any, like okay, I went to a few things, but I didn't really have fun in my twenties. Like mm. it was actually pretty dry in terms of fun that makes me really sad looking back now um so what was the work you were doing sorry to interrupt yes so it was writing essentially but working in big media companies working at Condé Nast working Mm. in those environments that you know I grew up watching the devil wears Prada we forget how much culture really shapes us and I wanted to be inside the magazines I wanted to be interviewing all these people um it was a bit of a like an obsession um so yeah, I got to breaking point and then here we are now. <laughs> so so what did breaking point feel like and how did you identify that you were breaking? Like, was there a moment, a kind of revelation where you're like, this is not okay, what's happening, how I'm feeling? Yeah, so the, the intro of the book is sort of me talking about, and there are lots of examples of this, I just picked one to write about, but I was doing this keynote speech, I was being paid so much money, I was 20 eight I think at the time Mm. um flying there in a taxi like you know that moment of I've made it right I have made it I'm in demand I'm in I'm desirable (laughs) yes I'm in that montage moment that I as a little kid wanted and feeling so empty Mm. like so lonely and so miserable and going back to my lovely hotel room and lying on the lovely bed and being like what the hell is my life this is so empty. And, um, and I, you know, and I could have just pretended everything was fine for a lot longer than I did. Because what's so interesting, I think, about social media especially is you can get addicted to the validation. Because my Instagram feed was like, wow, because I put, you know, a picture up mm. of me with a microphone or something. Wow, you're doing so amazingly, so great, blah, blah. And it's very jarring because you don't want to lose that because that's your validation. That's like the thing that you're craving. Yeah. But what I clearly was craving was actually some real connection. Right. And can you talk to me about trusting yourself as well there's another great quote when we talk about success a huge part of stepping towards your goals is tweaking your internal dialogue and learning not to trust it as gospel so it's this idea of not trusting your thoughts being knowing that your thoughts are 
kind of a result of conditioning and societal conditioning and your childhood. But then also being able to trust your thoughts that you are going in the right direction. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think we're so good at drowning out the, the inner the inner voice. Like it's there. It's like you. It's a part of you that is kind of nudging you. Like I got so many nudges over the years of, "Hey, this isn't quite right. This I don't like this." You know, like that sort of. I don't really know how to describe it, but for me, it's like a little bit of an alarm bell in my body, in my physical body, of like, "Oh, this isn't mm. right. Mm. This off. The vibes are off, basically." Mm. And um, I just ignored them, pushed it down, um, put headphones in, drink some wine, whatever. And then I think what happens if you ignore that voice for too long, yeah. you essentially can be burnt out or something happens where you're kind of forced into making a change. Right. And then um, can you tell me about Allegra? I know in the book you say, please don't ask, but I need to ask about Allegra. Oh, God, yeah. So I think it's a really practical <laughs> example of how you can kind of sort the kind of unhelpful thoughts with the helpful ones. Totally. I mean... Other people have spoken about this before. I'm Julia Cameron, the author of The Artist's Way, is a huge inspiration to me. And hers is called Nigel. So it's basically this inner voice that is just so dramatic and really mean. And it's not you. It's coming from somewhere else. Like, I don't, I think you have, like, naming it makes it feel separate to you. Because mm. I think our actual self wants the best for us. Mm. You know, we want to grow. That's like what we do on earth, like things grow. Um, and so anything that's stopping you growing, you've got to question it. So mine is called Allegra and it's, I imagine it as like a lizard. And um, yeah, when I was very unwell, because I was so out of alignment, mm. I think when you're out of alignment with your values, that's when it pipes up the loudest. Mm. When I was, um, you know, in a management team, like earning loads of money, but miserable, Allegra was like screaming at me, mm. like, what are you doing? Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it got, it got pretty bad. And and now, um, now that I've tuned in with that side of my, of that voice, I'm like, oh, Allegra's piping up, but that, that's a good thing. That means something's wrong. Let's figure it out. Mm. What if you're coming from like a place of poverty and you've worked your ass off and you're providing for your family and you know what I mean? Like, I'm just trying to think of all different types of people who would be applying these suggestions. Like, what if you were someone who came from no money and no support emotionally, financially, and then you do get the money, there must be a kind of underlying, a whole other level, I suppose, of kind of perception of where you are and why you need to be there. Totally. And I think I could have called this book the excess myth. Mm, interesting. Like, I'm talking about how there are many people in this world, I believe, who have too much, me included, mm. quite frankly, mm. where you're out of alignment because we have too much of it. It's almost like I've said goodbye to, to too much of it. I right. just want to go back to being enough. So what I'm really talking about in the book is like from like a global scale, things are really bad mm. because some people have too much and some people don't have anything and can't feed their families and have to go to food banks and pe they send their kids to school and they can't eat. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm talking about in this book is like, this is really wrong. And when we think about success, let's reframe what that is so that everyone can get on board. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think success is everyone having enough. And I think everyone being able to really have the basics like pretty much sorted. Mm. And I, I mentioned like universal basic income in the book. I mm. don't know loads about it. But imagine a world where like everyone just had a really good starting point. Mm. And I don't think that's asking like for the moon. Mm. <laughs> I think we should all have enough. And so... I guess what I'm doing in this book is I'm putting myself on the line, really, and sort of saying it's quite icky when you feel like 
you are craving something that is too much. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, it's capitalism entrenched in all of us, right? Yes. And that's why your question is an amazing question. But I don't have the answers because what I'm talking about in this book is so huge in some ways. Yeah. That, like, this is like, we need to change this. We all need to do this collectively yeah. um, and talk about it. Mm. I mean, oh my God, there's so much I want to talk about. Collective ambition, another huge yes. thing. And, and we'll get to ambition. Yes, it's like, what is success if it's not everyone? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. We live in such an individualist culture now with social media and people growing up with social media. The way that they are trained to think about their life is to project themselves to the world, to kind of present a version of themselves to the world and to curate their life accordingly so that other people are seeing it. But it's never about the collective. I mean, maybe that's a social media gap that needs to be filled, this idea of like a collective side of social media in terms of presenting people or communities. Can I go back to you, Emma, and, you know, you talked about that moment when you realised that you were miserable in your lovely bed in your lovely hotel room. What happened next? Um, I did nothing. <laughs> I did nothing about it. I continued in the same way for maybe another three years. Right. Which sort of... Yeah, it's kind of funny looking back because, you know, also when I think about this book, I think it's for everyone, but I also think it's for a very specific person too, which is that person that I can imagine in my head who is doing really well, actually, and their parents are really proud of them and they're earning really good money and life is fine, but they are like really lost, like mm. deep down. Mm. Um and I actually don't think there's anything wrong sometimes with writing a book with like a very specific person in mind because once ideas spread far enough, like they do end up reaching everyone too. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't even have to be someone who's earning lots of money, I think, is either. It's kind of someone who's followed the rules of what traditional success looks like. Yeah. So they've done what their parents or society or their school have kind of expected them to do, whether, you know, get married to the right person, get the nice flat or be you know get a mortgage and have a baby because they want the nice family thing and you know get the job just all of the things that you think you should do that society has taught you to be successful what this book does I guess it's it kind of questions those things and it makes you look at you know the question that I've been obsessed with for the last four years what do you really want yes which is so hard to answer because you have to really dig you have to really dig down into who you are and what your values are. Yeah, and it can really go against the the culture. And I guess we're sitting here, yeah, in a Western culture, but all around the world there are different versions of what that is. Like you just said, the rules, the rules of how you were born. Like mm. you're meant to do this. You're supposed to do this. Mm. And I think this is really what the success myth looks at is, like you say, success is very personal. And I know so many people with wildly different lives. And when they can look in the mirror and be like, yes, this is it. That's the moment, that's success. When did you start being able to, I suppose, build a way of working and living that felt like a new type of success for you? It's funny because I think... A lot of this as well, uh, well, from my point of view, is is when we lose touch with, like, our childhood self, that's mm. when things can go really wrong. For me, when I'm, like, in touch with, like, my younger self, like, the self that loved to write, loves to read, loves to wear a wacky jumpsuit, loves colours and loves... Like, it's very joyful. 
mm. my version of success. And I think when I don't allow myself to get caught up in like all the things I should want, even with like, we all f follow trends, let's be honest. But when I catch myself like really tap trying to follow a trend, that's me going, oh, I, I, please like me if I wear that certain outfit or whatever. Mm. So I don't know if that's, like success is sort of just being like, oh, you're you're tapping into like that purity again, I think. Mm. Mm. Okay. Productivity. Something very close to my heart because I realised upon reading your book that I was born into a family that do, 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 do. My production mm. company that produces podcasts is called DIN, D-I-N, do it now. Mm. I am like obsessed with doing. Even when I rest, I have to plan it all out. I'm going to read the newspaper for 15 minutes and I'm going to do that. I might take a walk, go down and get a coffee. That like, I can't just be. And I found your writing about productivity so interesting this idea of shame shame around resting what have you learned about our perceptions of rest and how do you feel like they should maybe could change mm. oh it's so so interesting talking about rest because um and you know to caveat this I took four months off work from burnout um end of last year and I and again massive you know disclaimer that I'm very lucky I could because I have multiple income streams that could tide me over and I don't know many people that could do that unless you're signed off work which I know people mm. are sometimes so anyway I rested for four months essentially and what I learned about rest is a it was very uncomfortable because who am I if I'm resting no one then you know, it was like really confronting. It was like my identity is like the person that makes stuff. And I wasn't. I had to sit with myself. Um, but I learned compassion for myself. I learned that I actually think I am enough, actually, just like being on this planet if I'm not doing stuff all mm. the time. It made me really question why we are so brainwashed into being like we're only worth something if we have output. And I learned that resting is not doing nothing. Mm. Like sleeping is great. Lying on the sofa is great, but rest, like actual rest is like doing something because you want to do it. Like swimming for me is, is rest mm. because I'm resting my brain and I'm kind of resting my body because I'm just like swimming around. Yeah. So I learned that it's a quite active rest. Right. Okay. So for those listening who feel like they might be burnt out or might have experienced it or might be on their way to experiencing it, Obviously, every, it's all subjective. It's all how you feel. You can't measure pain. You can't measure any of that. But what were your personal experiences and what are your signs for you to know, I need to rest now. I'm burnt out. My body's overloaded. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually feel lucky that it was so bad because I was forced to rest. I think right. if it was like a little bit bad, I would have pushed through it. I mean, the statistics around people that work through COVID, for example, like coughing into the Zoom screen. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, we don't know how to rest as a culture. Um, but I had no choice. It was actually really, really bleak and really, really scary. Like my brain was sort of broken. So I oh, couldn't no, really no. do anything. Like I literally couldn't even go for a walk or make toast. Like I was right. like the computer was functionally yeah. <laughs> broken. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really weird. I couldn't even look at my phone for longer than like a minute. Like my, my eyes wouldn't really work when I was looking at the pixels. So something was very much needing to mend. Mm. And I think, um, I know it's hard to talk about it in a way because it's all different. And I also don't know if it was mixed in with like a little bit of COVID sure. sort of post-trauma stuff. Because I think everyone has their own version of what they went through in COVID. And also 
I think I'm a highly sensitive person. Mm. So other people's tolerance levels are a lot higher than mine. Mm. Like I can kind of break down quite easily because the world is quite overwhelming. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, which is why I'm a writer, so it all makes sense. Mm. But um I learned that I could get through it, which is amazing. And mm. I learned that we are kind of well, we are part of nature, aren't we? So we need to replenish. We can't always be like fully in bloom. Mm. That's what I learned. Mm. I mean, you got to stop the car and fill it up with petrol or yeah. it will stop going. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the same basic thing, isn't it? It's very basic, which makes me laugh because it's like, why Why, why is, is it, it such a problem for us? I know. Well, I, I guess, you, you know, the bosses would say, well, that's what weekends are for, you know. But weekends, like I, I think for so many people who work, you just about recover enough to then be able to go back to work. Mm-hmm. You just about catch up on sleep and, and then you're back in work. So, I mean, this whole concept of four-day weeks feels wonderful to me and has been proven that people are just as productive if not more with that less time to have more time to rest do you think things could change in the workplace for the better with this moving forwards I hope so and I think even though I would never call myself an activist I've got like a real like flame in my belly around this topic at the moment because I also think that like when we look at the economy I think we're going to have a burnout epidemic on our hands. And so if a boss listening is like, oh, I don't believe in four weeks or I don't believe in long holidays. It's like, well, you're going to have people needing to be signed off work for three months. Like that's not going to be great for your business, is yeah. it? So yeah. I sort of think of if we want to talk about it in like capitalist terms, which a lot of people do still, um, it's still going to happen and people are still breaking down. Mm. Um, so why don't we make it easier for people to heal and then we can have a more thriving workplace? It makes so much sense. I mean, it's so basic. It's Mm. so obvious, isn't it? But it's like we're caught up in this culture of productivity. There's a beautiful analogy that you used in the book when you were talking about someone um, who kind of worked and worked and worked and worked. And on the outside, and we see this a lot on social media, we see people on the outside who just look like they are just, you know, they're killing it. They've got a, a new announcement every week and it's so much going on. But it's like seeing a ballet shoe with ruined toes inside. I love that line because it's so true, isn't it? You just don't really know how people are inside, how their state of mind is. Um, How are things changing in the workplace when it comes to productivity? There is laws coming in in various countries in Europe that I didn't know about until I read your book. Yes. So I think it's in France where it's becoming illegal to email or text or whatever any any of your staff members that pass a certain time, I think. And in Germany as well. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation around that because lots of jobs wouldn't be able to do that because, you know, if you're working like in an actual emergency or urgent sure. sort of yeah. place, like you can't necessarily do that. But I think for the majority, which is, I guess, what I talk about in the book, which is like what uh, this um, this guy, David Graeber, terms bullshit jobs where you mm. just send emails all day. <laughs> and it's like, it's okay to say that a lot of jobs are kind of pointless, like they are. And we saw it in the pandemic when people literally said, your job is non-essential. You're like... Oh my God, it, it is non-essential, but that's okay. So yeah. therefore, why are we killing ourselves over a non-essential job? Mm. So in terms of wanting to change our attitudes to productivity, um, let's say you're listening and you feel overwhelmed, you're so busy, you feel like you need to be busy in order to feel valid as a person. You feel like you have to contribute in whatever way you are doing it. In terms of how we change that attitude Can you explain milestone goals versus process goals? I loved this. Yes, I love this. This actually was super helpful for me when I learned about it. So milestone goals are very big, overwhelming goals. Like I want to write a book or I want to run a marathon or 
I want to launch a company. And that's like, whoa, okay, write that down on your list. It's very overwhelming. And a process goal is when you kind of break things up into bite-sized chunks, essentially, or at least you make the process a goal itself, which is really uplifting and really helpful. And so if your milestone goal is I want to write a book, your process goal would be I'm going to write for 15 minutes. Every day? Every day or not every day. Okay, Just yeah. today. Yeah. And then you tick it off. Yeah. And if you do that enough times, you've got a book. And it's just, and I use obviously that example because of what I do, but, you know, absolutely fill in the blank. But it's really good and it really keeps the motivation going. And I think, you know, it doesn't have to be all in one go. Yeah, I just love the the very simple concept of changing the reward to the small part as opposed to the huge part, you know, yeah. and making that process the productive and the rewarding part. Yeah, because our life is really made up of lots of very small things. Yeah. And your life is made up of, of, of each day, of its, each hour, each minute. And, and I think, you know, if anyone here is listening and going, you know, my job is sucking the life out of me, even like I want to quit my job, that's a milestone goal, which is great. But process goals are going to get you there. And that could literally be you know, like five minutes just like jotting down some ideas. It could be 10 minutes talking to a friend. And um, I've actually got a little turtle on my desk um, because Martha Beck, this amazing life coach that I that I know, she calls it turtle steps, like the tiniest step is what you need to do. And yeah. I just, everything I do is a turtle step, everything. Wow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, ambition. This was something, again, that resonated with me so much. And it's something that I realized I had my own entrenched belief of what ambition was. So in my head, when I think of ambition... I think of bigger, more, more ticket sales, more book sales, more listeners, more like stats going up. <laughs> that's ambition. Oh. More, 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 busier, busier. But that's not the definition of the word ambition. Like that ambition can be wanting anything. So you can be ambitious for a quieter life. You can be ambitious for a more collective experience uh, to serve your community more like Ambition can be anything that you apply your desires to. Yes, exactly that. So tell me about your personal change with how you change your outlook of ambition, because it's really interesting how you have done that. Like I get very inspired by watching you online and reading what you're doing because you seem to be so happy with your lot and so content with where you are in terms of how you conduct your career as a writer. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting one because... I really do just have my own ambitions and I don't know where this has come from, but like I do have like blinkers up sometimes. I'm just I'm just on my path and like other people are on theirs and I just feel that I'm very clear on what I want from my life. And it's like what you said earlier, what do I want? I actually remember Oprah Winfrey on some TikTok or something, not that I'm on there, saying <laughs> that that's how she lives her life. She's like, what do I want? And then I work backwards. 
it's not like how do I get to this faraway place that looks good. It's like what do you want? Yeah. And how do you and then just you get there. Yeah. And I think for me, I feel very very lucky because I grew up in Exeter. I didn't really know any writers. I didn't really know anyone that like worked in the media or anything. But I knew from a very early age that I just wanted to be paid to write. That's my ambition. Wow. I don't, how did I, you know that? I, I mean, that's, it's so precise. It's, I know. But it's yeah. so simple. Mm. And I could have not got there or, or at least I could, you know, be making like not that much money on the side still from a side hustle, but I'd still be getting my ambition. I'd still yeah. do yeah, it. Yeah. And anything else is an icing on the cake, quite honestly. Yeah. And I think what what made me feel lost is when I was having more, 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 more because other people thought I should. But it's like, I don't even want that. Mm. I'm not even, I'm not actually that ambitious. I feel like mm. I have to whisper it. Mm. I'm not I'm but, not that but ambitious. ambitious in the sense of the traditional Yes, the like, traditional paradigm of ambition as opposed to ambitious for you being content. Yes. Yeah. I don't I don't want to do talks on stages. I don't really want to sell out arenas. I don't want to employ anyone. I work for just me. Mm. Um I like to keep it quite small. Mm. But that must be hugely liberating, the moment of realisation then. The, the, like the, oh, this is, I, I don't have to do this. How did that feel when you started kind of changing your life to becoming smaller and more effective for it? Just felt like I was being true to myself. There's only, I don't really know how else to describe it. It's like... Like the smaller me that wanted that thing is like, yay, <laughs> like you're doing it. It's like, it's a very personal thing, which is why I've spent the last year training to be a life coach. Oh my because God, my favourite thing now is not really talking about me and what I'm doing is like figuring out other people's is the most amazing feeling. And it's completely different to mine. When people ask me, how do I get this or how do I do what you're doing? They're not actually asking. They don't want my life. They don't want to be writing. They want to figure out their version. Sure. And that's what's really fun. Yeah. What have you learned in your learnings of, of life coaching? That we all know what we want is right. just figuring it out. Right. And digging beneath the sand. It's been covered up for years. Um, that ambition changes throughout our life. So like we might be having another conversation in 10 years time and I might have wildly different goals mm. and that essentially most people aren't actually listened to properly we just talk at each other mm. like on social media you know a lot of people just kind of want to speak and that's because they're not being heard and so if you are in a safe space with someone for an hour talking it out you could be talking to a brick wall and you'll go home having the answers so all people need is a chance to be able to talk up and out their feelings and in the process figure out what they want yeah basically yeah, yeah. and obviously coaches are more than just like sitting there <laughs> yeah but um they facilitate they you, facilitate and they, they ask of, very powerful questions yeah. that can unlock things but like i said this is i also think this is years and years of, of work and, and I, not to put anyone off doing it but nothing is fixed overnight and that's what i want to talk about in the book is i am allergic to anyone mm. any gurus that think that they can sell you a success potion of like take these three steps and you'll be fixed for life like this is an ongoing project we're yeah. all an ongoing project basically till we die yeah and it's just about learning how to be adaptable and flexible mm -hmm. and keep coming back to yourself and being true to yourself, right? So yeah. it's a constant thing. Not abandoning yourself, exactly. Yeah. Can I ask you about your decision, the not having kids thing, because you've talked about this a lot. You're a person that has so much conviction in who you are and what you want. So this is something that you've talked about a lot, and I know all of your, your novel is the main protagonist is about that too. What have you run into, again, with the views of traditional society, 
with regards to that decision and being public about that yeah. choice you've made. Yeah. So funny again, because I wrote Olive, which is a story about a child-free woman and all her friends start to become mothers. Right. But I wrote that like three years ago now. Yeah. And now I'm Olive. Now I'm actually Olive. Like all my friends are having kids. I'm okay. like, oh my God, this is really amazing, but also terrifying. Yeah. So Why I, is it terrifying? Well, I know like in my bones that I don't want to have children. Um, yeah, you say in the book, I know as much as someone who knows they want to have kids. Yes. I know that I don't want to have kids. Yes. Mm. Which is... I feel like it's still a taboo because mm. when I talk to my friend whose eyes are lit up because they're so excited to be a mother, my eyes light up with all the things I'm going to do because I'm not going to be a mother. Yeah. <laughs> like It's like we have the same, but um, but not the same. And it's really cool because I can be very excited for my friends who are having kids at the moment because I'm very aware you know, that it's not a choice sometimes and that sure. there is another side of this conversation where it's very, very painful when your friends start, start to have children and you're struggling. So I feel like, again, very privileged that mm. I, I don't, I'm like very neutral. I'm just like, oh my God, yay. I don't yeah. have any other feelings towards it than that. Um, but yeah, I just, I just know that that's, again, my path. And I think I've just done enough work to realise what I want for my life. Is there patterns of how people react to you when, when you talk about that? Or the same things that are said or questions or? Yes. I mean, I did a lot of press around Olive, did a lot of interviews and it was very well-meaning. But a lot of the people interviewing me would say, oh, I thought that when I was your age. Mm. Um, but now I have two beautiful children. Wow. You'll change your mind. Oh, Yeah, I get, I get that a lot still. Wow. It's like they want me to have a have the door open to it still yeah. and I understand that but it's kind of strange because it's like why do you need me to mm. maybe have them mm. it reminds me a lot of um I don't I think it might be different now maybe but when I was younger growing up in Ireland if anyone didn't drink it made everybody else feel very uncomfortable and they'd be like come on just like just have one you know and it was always like well why not you know because by them not drinking it made the other drinkers have to look at themselves and their choices. <laughs> yeah, and maybe. it's like it's it's really interesting how people react to that stuff. Um talking about your changing, I suppose, attitudes to your own sense of success, your own ambition, your own productivity. Writing this book, how was it different, if it was at all, from writing the other books? Oh my god, that's such a good question. Um, but I don't know if anyone will ask me that because it's it's actually really touches on something really quite profound, like in in the experience of writing it, which is my other books had an energy about them. I believe where I was like, I want them to be bestsellers. <laughs> like, I want my book to do really really well, and this book doesn't have that. It will do amazing because of that, which I'm is going to be very strange if it does. Like, there'll be some sort of a yeah scientific energy study on why that works that way, but um. I just want this book to reach people. I love talking about it. The fact that I get to talk to you today about it, mm. I think it connects us all. I think we're all trying to figure things out at the moment. Mm. And so if this book is just like a little vessel for us all to have a conversation, that honestly ticks the box for me. And I know that sounds cliche. People be like, oh, you want it to be a bestseller. I actually don't care. Yeah. I do not care. Yeah. But isn't, isn't that massively liberating? It must feel lovely that because you've enjoyed writing the book. It's done something for you. So you've gone with the whole process thing you've done the process goals you've been, like it's been a process that's fulfilled you and nourished you and no matter what happens nothing can change that totally and it's funny a question that I'm asked all the time whether people want to start a Substack, whether they want to write a book whether they want to do something else is will it be worth it and I'm like 
but that's so subjective. What What is worth it for you? Like, this book is worth it because I got something out of it and I feel like other people will. Like, that's mm. enough. Did you surprise yourself or learn anything new about yourself in the process of writing this? I think I learned that my writing is maturing. Interesting. Like Someone said to me, who I've known for nearly 10 years in this industry, was like, you sound a bit older and wiser in this book. And it's so wise. And it's really nice because I think I could beat myself up about my past books and be like, oh, they're not very good then. Yeah. But I think the point is that we're all growing. And so start now just do anything now because even in five years like basically in five years we'll always look back and it won't be as good as you thought it was going to be so therefore just do it what are you thinking with regards to your next projects i know you write all the time on your Substack. We'll put a link there, obviously, for anyone who wants to go and subscribe to Emma's writing. Do you think ahead? Are you a planner when it comes to your career? I I don't know from this coaching perspective if that's something you would even encourage. Well, I'm very aware that my job isn't really a normal job in the sense of because I can like move the goalposts myself and sort of use my own time in my own way, which, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to do. But I tried to write my second novel before this book and it wasn't coming out. Okay. Like it was just not happening. Yeah. Uh, Olive came out in 2020. So three years later, I've not written a second one. Um, and I do have a two book deal. So I have to write yeah, that. But you've written an entire other book, babe. Hang on. Uh, ex- exactly. An entirely other book. So <laughs> exactly. That's very productive for three years. But I suppose what's interesting about that is this book wanted to come out and the other one didn't. Yeah. And I kind of do believe in like that creative energy of whatever wants to come out comes out. And if I, sat there just bashing away at my keyboard trying to write a novel um I wouldn't have written this and I just had to go with the flow really Mm. I'm always so curious about when a writer knows that it's not working if you know what I mean like I presume when you write that much you, you can feel it you can feel it when it's not flowing but that moment when you have to abandon a project it's heartbreaking oh my god I think it led to my burnout really it's like that Einstein quote of if you keep doing the same thing over and over again you'll go mad or so whatever I've yeah. butchered that quote yeah <laughs> you know what I mean yeah I do you go insane if you try something it doesn't work um so yeah I I've been talking to a lot of authors actually over the pandemic who have said the same that things aren't flowing things aren't coming and that's because we're not resting because the minute I go and actually rest or take care of myself or be nice to myself or go and do something else like I'm writing so much on my Substack. that's flowing that's coming out mm. but this novel doesn't want to come out yet and I just I'm trusting that. I'm trusting the process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's wonderful that that you are in a position now to be as experienced as you are to know that it will arrive when it arrives, you know? Yeah. When it's time. Exactly. I know. And it's it's difficult because I'm very aware that I'm so many years into this career now that I have this perspective, but that's because I've kind of done it and been there. I've also been the person that stayed up all night until 5 a.m., writing because I was so frantic and really wanted it to happen so it's a mixture of hard work of course but I don't think we should punish us I don't think we need to punish ourselves for our creativity what is your definition of success now for yourself I would say it is being true to myself like not abandoning myself that is really just it now Mm. Um, which sounds very cryptic how do you do that like on a practical level 
something I'm trying to work out is how to prioritise myself without being selfish. I don't think there's anything wrong with being selfish because my friends and my family are so important to me and I like to think I'm empathetic and I want to like always be there for them. But I do have to really put myself first now, having gone through the burnout, because it came from a lot of people pleasing. That was my downfall, <laughs> is yeah. constantly putting everyone else first. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of women especially could probably relate to that. As I'm not even a mother. Like, I see my friends with kids where it's that times a million, really. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's really prioritising my own needs and um, staying really true to kind of just what, what I need is success for me. Yeah, and being able to identify those needs mm-hmm. and, and going circling back to that thing you said at the start, that kind of being in tune with yourself to, uh, to recognise the little, the little ick signs. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> the, the ick sign, signs. The little signposts of like, oh, this doesn't feel right, I'm uncomfortable. The last thing is, this is one of the things I screenshot of my friend, is, is this idea of phases, phase one and phase two. Um, and I really feel like I'm in a state of flux transitioning into phase two. Could you explain what phase one and phase two are? So hopefully our listeners will be able to identify themselves in those phases. Yes. And this is inspired and also coined by the amazing Donna Lancaster, who is an incredible coach and therapist. So I just want to massively plug her because she's incredible. But she talks about phase one and phase two in her work, The Bridge. And phase one is essentially material items fill you up. It's very much about success on other people's terms or at least society's terms. And it's all about outward success. It's all about sort of validation and feeling like you're making it in whatever terms society wants you to make it. Phase two is when all of that drops away. Like you've reached that. You've done that. It's not the shoes, the handbags, the stuff, the holidays. Like it hasn't done anything. It hasn't scratched the itch. Phase two is just fully turning it on its axis and you're, you're looking inwards and phase two is all about success on your own terms. And it, your inner world becomes the bit that's more exciting to you. Perfect. Love that. This book is so thought provoking. And uh, I think anyone who is able to get it will really not not regret it. I have been screenshotting pages and sending them to my friends. And I'm going to give this proof copy that I have here full of notes, full of um, underlined paragraphs that says me beside them. <laughs> this is me. <laughs> this is me. Uh, I'm going to give this to my friends and um, and tell everyone about it. Emma, honestly, well done. Congratulations. What an achievement to write this book. I think you're going to help so many people. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. And I really do think the collective thing is really important here and reach out we need each other with this is really about community because it's really hard pushing against the tide mm. it's really hard saying no when people want you to say yes mm. it's really hard to quit a job when everyone thinks you're doing fantastically like this conversation maybe we're making it sound easy i just wanted to say like this is not easy but we can all do it and we can all do it together emma thank you so much thank you so much And that is it for this week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Please do share this episode to anyone who you think will appreciate it. And uh, subscribe to Changes as well. That's always so, so cool if you could do that. We're very grateful. It means you'll get the episodes that come every Monday morning delivered straight to you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Changes. Until then, huge love. This episode was produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. See ya.